Well, it's good to have you back. I'm uh, each week excited to see you coming. I'm wondering whether anybody's coming back or not, but uh, it's good to see you. Uh, I feel uh, honored that you're here. Hopefully we're uh, learning a little bit about the foundations that lie underneath um, some of what is above the surface, just like a foundation of a house is unseen, but the superstructure comes out of the ground and you see it. So in our lives, there are lots of beliefs and values that are underneath the surface, but our actions and our thoughts and our words and our emotions are seen. And so we're trying to look underneath the soil a little bit and see what foundational elements there are. When it comes to Calvary Church, what are those commitments? What are those values that everything's growing out of, but that we don't take off, dust off, and examine themselves too often? So we're trying to do that in these few weeks. Well, let me pray and we'll get started with a little review and we'll tackle our next subject. Lord, we give you thanks for a, a beautiful day. And we were reminded today uh, of the changing seasons. And Lord, it started off uh, exceptionally cold, uh, wound up being a little warmer. And daylight is lasting a little longer and starting a little earlier. Uh, we're appreciative of that. And Lord, we're reminded in the midst of all that change that you superintend all of that, that in your providence and in your love and care, things are happening according to your plan. Lord, so often we get frazzled and upset, frustrated, depressed when we see things not going the way we think you want them to go and the way we want them to go. And yet, Lord, if we step back for a minute, we realize there's nothing outside of your control Nothing surprises you. Nothing causes you to be concerned, wringing your hands, wondering what to do. It's all taken care of. Lord, help us to be able to rest in that, um, that you not only are sovereign, but you're our Father. You love us, take care of us, and want us to come and share our needs, our desires with you, and then to follow you closely as we live life. Thanks for the privilege of knowing you and of representing you in the world. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're uh, in these 10 weeks uh, looking at some pillars and we're trying to look at those things that things are growing on or being built on up top. Uh, I'm not sure if you ever realized this or not, but if you think of most things in life, um, they kind of function as a pyramid. Um, and so in a church, for example, the foundation of that pyramid or that bottom stripe, um, I would call theology, right? So you've got the Bible, you've got theology, that's kind of the base. And then the top of the pyramid, all the way up top, you know, kind of the little pointy part, that would be methodology. So you have theology on the bottom and you have methodology on the top. And most often in churches, there's a lot of emphasis on the theology, doctrinal statements, right? Understand what the Bible says, write it down, bullet it. And then there's a lot of emphasis on methodology. What do we do? What programs do we have? When we start the service, what songs are we singing? When's youth group going to meet? When do students do this? How about bridge? But in between, what bridges between theology and methodology is philosophy, philosophy of ministry, strategy. And a lot of what we're talking about is part of those linkages or part of the bridge between theology and philosophy. So we're talking theology, but how we're looking at theology has a spin on it, right? We're looking at it a certain way. There are other ways to look at it, as we said last week, and we'll, and we'll re review a little bit tonight. Our goal is not to make everybody agree with us. It's to kind of examine the spin or the interpretation that we're giving to some of the principles, some of the theology, some of the Bible. That'll help us understand. And so we're looking at four pillars uh, thus far. It's our third week. We've only done one. We're going to finish the first one tonight. I do want to remind you of this because I really like this. <laughs> and I'm not sure if you've implemented it yet, but uh, I really have been implementing this and living this, and I found it real helpful. And that doesn't mean it may be helpful for you, but I find it is an interesting, um, informative way for me to ask the right questions and record the right information. So if you're like me, as I've said a couple of weeks now, we have literally thousands and thousands of inputs all of these things coming in, some intentional, some unintentional, it's all coming in. But very often we live life at such a high pace, we never take time to reflect, to think, to meditate, to process, and glean insights from the inputs. So insights periodically, what exactly are you learning? What are you connecting? Where is the light going on? Maybe 
in the couple of weeks we've been together or in the next few weeks, does something come together? Answer a question you've had, but you could never sort it out. Record those insights because I, I tell you what will happen if you're like me. The insights are really powerful, right, when you first have it. And you're excited, you want to tell people, you're all fired up about it. Well, if you don't record it and you don't have a way to think about it, it'll be gone in two months. It won't nearly be as powerful anymore. And if you're not careful, it'll be completely forgotten. And what, and what once energized you and brought you passion now is totally forgotten. So record it. I'm not really a journal guy. Uh, we, staff is practicing journaling though for these couple of months. Um, a journal, you don't have to journal every day. It is a, have somewhere to record the insights. You don't have time to record the impacts. There are too many. But when you have insights, when something happens, record the insight. And then out of the insights, what are those things that you, need, that you need to integrate, you want to live in your life? As I've said, not one or two times apply it, live it, make it part of your life on a regular basis. So inputs, insights, integration, um, hopefully you will keep track of that and that will help you remember things and live in light of them. Well, we started the first week by looking at ministry. We didn't even look at a pillar. We, we tried to answer the question, what is ministry? What is mission? We assume we know what those terms mean, and we came up with this simple little diagram and uh, definition, and we said ministry or mission is being used by God to influence people to move from where they are to where God wants them to be. Pretty simple definition. A number of you had definitions. You were all in the ballpark. It all makes sense. It's all good. But if you think about it for a couple of minutes and just look, look at the picture, you realize the simple definition becomes very complex and complicated. Where does God want people to be? Well, you're never gonna nail that, right? You can always learn more. God wants people to know the scripture, or things you have to know. God wants us to live the scripture. God wants us to be sharing it, right? We often talk about knowledge, character, skills. God's given us gifts, that's the skill part. God wants us to know certain things, that's what the scriptural theological part is. And then you've gotta have character, you live certain things. Knowledge, character, skills, what are they? Where does God want people to be? Where are people? Well, they're kind of all over the map, they're not in one location. I read an interesting article today about Gen Zers. How are Gen Zers different? They grew up in a world that I didn't grow up in. They have um, idiosyncrasies, passions, concerns, values that are a little foreign to me, well, their starting point is a little different. We need to know something about where people are because ministry is not calling them to where we are. It's moving to where they are and then influencing them to move to where God wants them to be. And then means of influence, right? You have all kinds of studies again. Evangelism, discipleship, leadership, management, all kinds of strategies, very complicated. So our simple definition becomes very complex and we realize we're never gonna nail it and all of a sudden you get it right and never have to do it again. So that was our first week. Uh, then we talked about our four pillars, right? And we're emphasizing the first one at this point. Uh, the Bible is a big story, or if you like technical terms, the Bible is a meta-narrative. The word meta, that's just a transliteration of a Greek prefix and it means beyond. So it's a narrative, a story, that's beyond all the little, little stories. So all of the local narratives get funneled up into a big meta, a, me, a narrative beyond all the little narratives. It's a meta-narrative. Um, and we'll finish that tonight. I put this quote up last week because I really like it. I put it up there again. Um, Stephen James uh, says this, and you actually watch the, uh, the video when he's at the fire. Uh, the wording was weird. He looked like one of those Japanese films. But, uh, but the wording is really good. But here, here's his quote. When Christianity becomes something other than entering into and living out the story of God, it becomes something other than Christianity. God's story isn't over. It's still being told today. Each one of us has the potential to become both a chapter in history and a chapter of his story. So in the first part of that, when Christianity becomes something other than living out the story, how does that happen? Well, Christianity becomes a list of doctrinal statements if you check them all off, you're in. You never find that in the Bible. In fact, that James even uh, kind of pokes fun at that when he says, uh, so you believe these things? Great. The demons also believe them. I mean, just because you check all the right boxes and you, that doesn't make you a Christian. Um, it's not all the do's and the don'ts. So it's not a theological checklist. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. 
Christianity is a story and it's reading our lives into that story. It's living out that story, not applying the Bible to our life, but applying our lives to the Bible. And then we uh, played with this puzzle piece and a little diagram last week. And we said, we live in a culture that continually bombards us with stories. And the real key there is, we are narrative by nature. We love stories, we gravitate to stories, and the stories teach us, and we learn from the stories. We read our lives into the stories, we see ourselves in the stories. The problem is, we then sometimes come to church, go to small groups, Sunday school, etc., and we learn the Bible as if it were a collection or handful of bits. So if we get a, a cultural story that may have some gaps, but it's pretty much hanging together, but the Bible's just a handful of bits or puzzle pieces, the most natural thing in the world for us to do is to take the bits and plug them into the wrong story. So now we're taking the, the scripture verses of the Bible and using them to support the wrong narrative. So we need to not do that. Part of the way you avoid this is you learn that the Bible's a story and you become familiar with the acts of the story. We then talked about approaches to the Bible. And we said a lot of our kind of intramural debates, debates between Protestants and Presbyterians and Reform guys and you know, Arminian guys, all those debates, really aren't discussions of verse by verse. They're discussions of approach to the Bible. And I gave you some pictures last week. If the pictures help, good. If not, forget them. <laughs> but the pictures I used were, some people read the Bible as if it's just a giant bag of marbles. It's all flat. There's no movement to it. You take out some marbles, you play with them, you arrange them, you pick the right colors, right? But that's not, that, that denies that the Bible's a story then. That would be like a game show we said on TV. You can watch tonight, watch next week, watch a year ago, watch two years from now. You don't have to know anything about the other shows, right? You just look at that marble. Another way to look at the Bible is to picture it as a, as a staircase. That's better. There's now a connection. You're moving from something to something. There's a trajectory. But when you begin to say that God treats people, the message from step to step is different, you're, you, you're losing the unifying message. Um, and so there's a theme that runs throughout. And if you have steps, you kind of lose that from step to step. We said there, if you're a law and order watcher or something like that, maybe, maybe that's how it goes. Yet there's movement, but how they act in this season when Jack was the DA and how they act over here when somebody else, it, it's different, right? It's a different system. Another way to look at it is uh, kind of the uh, Hallmark movie ramp, right? Everything's crystal clear. From the beginning, you know where it's going. Yeah, there's going to be a problem. There'll be some twists and turns. But in the end, it'll be they live happily ever after. Uh, that's a little too simple. Um, we said that reading the Bible may be a good picture is of a mountain. And we could even have more twists and turns and caverns and kind of false peaks. Um, that's kind of what the, the Bible's like, right? Depending on where you are, you lose sight of the, of the, of the, of the conclusion. You get lost in a cul-de-sac. You get stuck in a cavern. You feel like you're making the same loop over and over again. You need help to get to the next peak. It's very complicated. Maybe, if you're a TV viewer or a series watcher, um, Lord of the Rings, the Bible's more like that, right? You have to know what happened here in order to understand what the players are doing over there. Or maybe it's a Netflix series, right? You have to know what happened in season one to have an understanding of what's gonna happen in season two. And if you're watching season four, you need to know about the other seasons to know how you got here. That's what the Bible's like. It's a big story, but it's not simple. It's not flat, it's not a collection of marbles. It's not steps where God treats people very differently. It's not a ramp where everything's crystal clear, it's hard. Um, but the Bible does have a peak, it has a climax, a trajectory, but boy, it's hard to get there sometimes. I was th thinking about that today, and I was thinking about food. How, how many of you like chocolate? Raise your hand. Okay, interesting. I, I don't like chocolate. Um, but I know a lot of people like chocolate, so okay, you guys like chocolate. How do you eat a piece of chocolate when you get it? Well, you put it in your mouth, kind of savor it, right? Swirl it around a little bit, and eventually you swallow it. How do you eat a jawbreaker? If you eat a jawbreaker the way you eat chocolate, you'll be going to a dentist, right? 
The Bible is much more like a jawbreaker, right? I mean, you, you'll break your brain on this thing. Right? You can't put it in, swish it around a little bit, and then all of a sudden you're good to go. The Bible's hard. It's like a mountain. Um, you need some help in order to climb Mount Everest. You need people to come alongside and guide you. You need to be prepared for the climb. It, the Bible's kind of like that. There's some treacherous places. We need help along the way. We need each other rather than somehow get alone by ourselves and think we're going to figure it all out. So that kind of brings us up to date where we are. And tonight, we're going to look at the story. So on top of all of that now, a number of years ago, we produced what we call the story because we're real creative and are good with titles. Wednesday nights and the story. So good we are. <laughs> so the story... The, the logos are new, you know, kind of the icons are new. The basic gist of the stories, the Bible hasn't changed, right? So we look at the Bible in six acts. One story, but like a play, there are six acts. And we're trying to say, yeah, the six acts, kind of like climbing a mountain. You know, act one, you're kind of at base camp. Then all of a sudden you have a problem trying to get to the next stage. And in order to get to the summit, well, you've got a lot of work to do to get there. The Bible, one story, one big story, but we're trying to understand it, and we did that in six acts. Nothing sacred, nothing biblical about six acts. I'll show you that toward the end. Uh, some people, N.T. Wright, for example, he has five acts. We have more than N.T. Wright. Look at that, right? Other people have nine acts or whatever they call them. Um, we have six. We chose six because we think that does, and we'll talk about this later, that does justice to the story and the nuances of the story, but it's easy to remember. If you're going to get more than six, all of a sudden now you got to write it down, you got to put it in your phone, it gets too complicated. We've tried to also make each of the acts sound similar so we can remember them. We tried to use language that's easy to remember. So rather than using weirded out words, we use God. Now again, we'll never fully understand God, but we kind of know God, right? We say God creates, he's rejected, God promises, God appears, God sends, God restores. That's the story in six acts. So what we're going to do tonight, we're going to walk through the six acts. I'll give you a verse or two for each of the acts, just so you can kind of navigate what's there. We'll talk a little bit about the act, and then we'll, I'll show you how we're going to end. All right, is that good? All right, here's how we start. God creates. So the first verse of the Bible reads, In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Now notice, the verse does not say God popped into being in the beginning. He's already there at the beginning, right? God has no beginning. So if we're going to be accurate theologically, God existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity in the past. God has no beginning. But at a certain point in time, God created stuff. Everything that exists, he created and all the stuff that he created, he calls good. In, in fact, that is very instructive, isn't it? In fact, when you read through creation, right, you read through Genesis 1, God creates day one, it's good. Day two, good, 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 all the way up day six, very good. Every day gets a good label. You know why I think that that's real important and why that's important for Christians to think about? Because creation and enjoying creation is good. Do you know Christians, church-going people, or do you ever have this kind of impulse that says something like, well, if it feels too good, I'm enjoying myself or something, it must be sin. No, God made us with senses, and God made creation that fires those senses, and God says it's good. It's good to enjoy creation. It's good to enjoy the sun. Not too good to enjoy this, the winter, but it's good to enjoy the sun. It's good to go for a walk. It's good to experience creation, rejoicing. Cre creation is good. That makes us radically different than lots of people, and that will cause us to live differently than lots of Christians. And so the negative will of God theory is not a biblical concept. Creation is good. God made us with senses to experience and enjoy creation. Now, as part of creation, on the sixth day, God creates human beings. So here's how it reads. The Lord God said, Let us make mankind in our image and our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over livestock and all the wild animals, 
over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So as the pinnacle of God's creation, he creates human beings, the crown of his creation. In fact, at the end of five days, it's good, 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 good. At the end of six days, when God made, you, made human beings, he says, it was very good. It's good. He makes human beings in his image. He makes the male and female in his image. Notice also that um, there's a plural in reference to God. So let us, that is not proof of the Trinity. You can't prove the Trinity because there's a plural there. Um, sometimes in Hebrew, that's called a plural of majesty. If somebody's really glorious or majestic, um, you would use a plural to kind of speak to that. But that certainly gives us a little bit of a clue that something's going on, right? It may not prove the Trinity, but boy, it kind of causes you to sit up and say, let us, but well, wait a minute. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When he made you, let us, well, who are the us? Um, well, the rest of the Bible, the rest of the story kind of unpacks that. Man and woman made in the image of God. So women are not less in the image of God. They're not more in the image of God. Men are not less or men are not more. And they're made as complements to each other. Right? So human beings made in God's image. Human beings now are given the responsibility to fill the earth and to rule over the earth. In some ways, human beings made in God's image are to do what God does. God creates. We don't create. We develop, we organize underneath God's creation. We put our little fingerprints on it and God's given us the ability to fill the earth with more image bearers of God. Isn't it just like God to wanna fill his earth with his image and he gives his image the ability to produce more image bearers? I, I, right? Only God could do this stuff, right? So God says, let there be man and woman, both made in my image, um, what's it mean to be in God's image? Well, probably we won't exhaust that. But the one thing we do know, we were made to be in relationship with God. Only human beings, that's the only part of God's creation that is said to be made in God's image. Only human beings can be in that kind of a relationship with God. And the one thing, you've probably heard me say this before, if not, you need to hear it now. The one thing that makes Christianity different then every other religion or worldview in the entire world has ever been or will be. Only Christianity has human beings made in the image of community. We're made in the image of Father, Son, and Spirit. Therefore, it is not good for us to be alone. Now, God can be in community all by himself. We need to be in community with other people. All other religions have to have love, have to have community as a secondary teaching. Christianity has being in community as a primary teaching. We're in the image of community and therefore we have to live out that community. All right, so we could talk more about creation, but that's kind of the basic idea. Well, this God creates, living in harmony, right? Peace, harmony, partnership, all those wonderful things. That lasts two chapters. So out of like all the chapters, that about, we get like four pages of this. And then we get to God is rejected. Um, I chose the God is rejected language rather than saying, and human beings fell, and human beings sinned. I wanted to choose something much more active because when you read Genesis 3, it isn't some kind of passive, oh, I messed up, oh, by accident. No, no, no. It is active rebellion that happens. God says this, they defy him and do that. Don't do this, they do it. It is active rebellion, it's not a passive accident. And that continues to be what sin is today. So here's how that goes down. In Genesis 2.16, toward, you know, kind of toward the end of the chapter, um, and Genesis 2, by the way, is a more specific look at creation. Uh, we don't have time to play with that too much. But often in Hebrew, the way Hebrew works, especially like Hebrew poetry or figurative language, um, they will have the big picture of something and then they'll zoom in on a part of it. That's what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. So in Genesis 1, we get global creation, everything. By the time you get to Genesis 2, we zoom in now. We zoom into a garden. 
We zoom into human beings being made at a garden. That's not contradicting one. It's kind of a micro view of what was described in a macro way in chapter one. And so here we learn about the prohibition. Think about it, only one prohibition. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. It's all for good, to eat whatever you want. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now, read that carefully and think about that. God says, you can eat anything you want in this garden, any tree. Now, there's one tree. I don't want to eat from that tree. And we need to remember, it was not a poison tree. So it wasn't like you ate the tree and all of a sudden you were poisoned. No, no, no. It's not a tree of poison. It's a tree of authority. And so we could say, why can't I eat from the tree? And God would say, because I said so. Nothing wrong with the tree. And you know what? It's God's universe. It's God's world. He made these people. He can tell them to do what he wants to do. It's a tree of authority. And here's the question. Will I be God? Or will you try to be God? Now, let, let, let this get, <laughs> let, let's get this straight. Adam and Eve cannot fill that seat real well. But does that stop them from trying? Heck no, right? Adam and Eve, in a sense, say, we think we could do a better job than that. We have our own interest in mind better than God does. So we're going to do it our own rather than do what God... You've never had those thoughts, right? God says, don't eat one tree. What's the one tree they want to eat up? Just like us, right? What do you want to do when the sign says, don't walk on the grass? What's the thing you want to do when it says, no U-turns? Well, something inside of us, just we want to do what we're told not to do. And by the time you get to uh, chapter three, just we're only two chapters in. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. And he said to the woman, "Uh, let me get this straight. Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Was that an honest question? No. Did Satan know what God said? Sure he knew. Did God know what he said? Yeah. Did Adam know what he said? Yeah. Did Eve know what he said? Yeah. Why does Satan ask the question? And why does he phrase it like that? Well, because he's a snake. So here's what he's doing. He is planting a seed of doubt. That's what he wants to do. He wants Adam and Eve to doubt. To doubt God's goodness. So here's what he's saying. Let me get this straight. God put you in the middle of a shady maple buffet and he told you, you can't eat anything? God didn't say that. God said, don't eat the three bean salad at the end. That's what he said. But he wants to plant a seed of doubt because here's the principle. If you doubt God's goodness, you will disobey God's word. In fact, if you doubt God's goodness, you have to disobey God's word. You cannot disobey God's word unless you doubt God's goodness. Those two things are linked together always. And Satan knows, right? Satan knows he can't get Adam and Eve to disobey as long as they think God loves them, God's sovereign, he has their best interest in mind. As long as they think that, they're going to do what God says. So he has to cause doubt, and once they're doubting, disobeying will quickly follow. And that's exactly what happens. They doubt God's goodness, they disobey God's word, and all hell breaks loose. God says, when you eat of it, you will certainly die. And some people say, yeah, but they didn't die. Yeah, they did. They immediately died spiritually and they began to die physically as soon as they ate. Immediately, they were alienated from God. Immediately. 
they were alienated from themselves, right? Now, they're, now they have a wrong view of themselves. They're alienated from each other. They're alienated from the world. Now it's by the sweat of your brow you're going to make a living. It's through the pain of childbirth. They're alienated from the world, alienated from themselves, alienated from each other, alienated from God. All that happens immediately, and they began to die. And one of the things, if you've never read this in staccato fashion, read the first, I don't know, 12, 13 chapters of Genesis. It goes like this. God says, hey, I put a tree of life in the middle of the garden, blah, blah, blah. When you eat of it, you will certainly die. Every chapter after that says, so-and-so lived and they died. And they died. And they died. And they died. Noah's flood. And they all died. And they died. And they died. Just like God said in chapter one. God means what he says. When you eat of it, you'll surely die. Alienation is the result. And one of the things that is still uh, kind of miraculous to me and very gracious we talked last week that the Bible is a really big book, right? 1,300 pages. It only had to be two pages. God creates everything. He makes man and woman in his image. He says, hey, I'm putting you in this great garden. You know what? You can have eternal life. Eat from the tree of life. We got, just don't eat from that one tree. They ate and they died. The end. But there's like 1,299 pages after that. Yeah. That spelled grace. God could have ended it right there, but he didn't. It's grace from there on out. Um, so God makes promises. And um, the promises run through the rest of the Bible, essentially. But they all kind of come back to and find their root in Genesis 12. And so in a nutshell, here's what's going on. You know, God never takes a step down a road without knowing exactly where it's going to lead. So when God stepped into the garden, knowing that Adam and Eve had rebelled against him, he knew, as soon as he stepped into the garden, he knew that that road was going to a cross, and from that cross, he would make this world his own once again. He knew it from the beginning. God knows the end from the beginning. As soon as he stepped in the garden, he knew where it was going to go. And he did it anyway. That's pretty amazing, right? And so God makes promises, um, and here in a nutshell is the promise that the Old Testament unfolds. I am going to win back my people. If my people will trust me, not their own righteousness, they've already squandered that. They can't earn it on their own anymore. But if they trust me through faith, they can be given righteousness. How's that going? I'm going to do that through a man and through a nation. And through that man and nation, will come a man, and that man will be the savior of the world. And that's where Abraham becomes a key figure, and that story begins in Genesis 12. So here's how the Abraham story begins. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. Hey, don't you like, just set out and go. I'll let you know while you're on your way where, where we're going. You, you just go. I'll make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So here's what God says to Abraham. I'm going to make you a great name, into a great nation. I'm giving you a great blessing. You're going to be a blessing, and I'm sending you on a great mission, a great name, a great nation, a great blessing, a great mission. What, what does all of that require, though? Since everybody dies, what does that require? How's Abraham going to be a great name? How's he going to be a great nation? How's he going to bring blessing to the world? And what's the mission? What does Abraham need in order for that to happen? What's he need? He needs kids. When God gives this promise to Abraham, anybody know? Or, how old is Abraham at this point? 75. Well, if you're 75 years old, you don't have any kids, and God says, you know what? And his name, Abram, means father. So God says, you know what? I'm going to give you a new name. He's probably saying, yeah, thank goodness, right? You keep calling me father, I have no kids. The new name he gives Abraham, <laughs> gives Abram, is Abraham. You know what Abraham means? Father of many nations. He has no kids, right? 
I mean, he's like the laughing stock at happy hour, right? Uh, Father, you, how many kids you got? I got none. 75. God likes to do that, right? To make promises to people, but the fulfillment is absolutely, absolutely dependent on God. I mean, Abraham, in a sense, he's the least likely to succeed. He's 75 years old. He comes from a pagan country. He moves to a land that's not his own. His wife and he, they can't have kids, and they're 75 years old when it gets started. Right? He can't fulfill this. God says, that's exactly right. Let's get started. By the time Abraham has Isaac, how old was he? 100 on the day Isaac was born. God gives the promise, and Abraham has to wait 25 years before the promise is fulfilled. You feel like God's been letting you down for a year, six months, five years? How about 25 years when you're 100 years old waiting for a kid? Um, so there are promises. Now, I'm not sure you realize this, 75% of the Bible is Old Testament. Only 25% is New Testament. So this third act for us, the act that we're saying God promises, that is like a huge amount of scripture. In fact, um, I would probably break it down, but I didn't want to have too many acts in the story. Here are a couple, a couple of the sub-acts in the God Promises chapter. The first part of the God Promises chapter is covenant. God gives a covenant to Abraham. God gives a covenant to Moses. God gives a covenant to David. All that covenant stuff in the Old Testament there, right? But not just covenant. Then there's conquest. Through Moses, they conquer the promised land. So the covenant comes, God promises. That's what covenant means, God promises. Then there's the conquest of the promised land. Then the establishment of the kingdom. And so covenant, conquest, kingdom are sub-acts in the God promised the story. And so it isn't like, well, you got one giant act that takes up most of the Bible. Yeah, they're kind of sub-acts in that, but it's easier to remember God promises than to say you know, a lot about the sub-acts. But one of the things that God is doing in that giant act called promises God is showing this nation, God's showing Israel what it looks like to live under his authority, under his love, under his care. You know, a lot of people, and, and it's true, right? You read the Old Testament, you read a lot about laws, and you do this, you got to jump through the hoops, you got to do this, but there's grace all through that Moses law stuff, right? Because there is a means of forgiveness. The innocent can die for the guilty. That's the promise. With Moses comes all the law, right? I think Moses is the lawgiver. Yeah, and Moses is the forgiveness giver. Moses gives us the tabernacle. Moses gives us the sacrificial system. Through Moses, God gives the means of salvation and grace and forgiveness. That's all in the God promises stuff, right? And through those pictures, through the tabernacle, temple, sacrifices, God, in a sense, is prophesying through pictures. He not only tells us what's going to happen through words, he tells us through the pictures. Jesus comes and says, I am the temple. I am the sacrifice, the Lamb of God. I am, right? Jesus is, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the pictures that come in the promise. Well, it's a lot of the Bible we could spend forever there. We're, we'll move on. Then God appears. This is Christmas, right? So now we've turned from Malachi to Matthew. God shows up. And uh, we read in John 1.14, Carlos spoke about this a couple weeks ago. Now, think, think right. God says, don't eat from the tree. They rebelled against God and ate. God then promises that one day, the woman's seed, that's kind of weird, right? You usually think man's seed, God says in Genesis, through the woman's seed, one will be born that will crush Satan's head. Huh. How's that going to happen? Well, one day the apostle John writes, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Um, there it is. God shows up. He appears. And if you uh, ever wonder why God makes a big deal in the Ten Commandments, don't make images. Don't paint pictures of me. Don't make statues of me. Don't paint pictures, right? Don't make images. You know why God said that? because I'm going to send my image. 
And your images will all pale in comparison. Don't you make an image. I'm going to send you my image. And he sends Jesus, the word, in the image of God, right? The word became flesh. There's the image. So don't you make images. God sends his image. But what does Jesus do when he gets here? Well, here's a a couple interesting verses that kind of show us what Jesus was about. Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues proclaiming the good news, that's gospel, right? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What does Jesus do? Jesus comes and all the miracles and all the teaching are in a sense presenting God's original intention. When Jesus does a miracle, He's not showing us just raw demonstrations of power or how strong he is or how strong God is. Jesus is giving glimpses into what God originally intended and what will be the ultimate destination. All of the miracles are pointing to what was and what will one day be, everyone. Healthy bodies, healthy bodies. No disruption, broken hearts, no broken hearts. No tears, no tears to what was intended and what will one day come to fruition. That's what the miracles are. So Jesus comes preaching the kingdom. He brings the kingdom, right? The good news isn't something we earn. He comes and delivers it. And he does these miracles to demonstrate what the kingdom looked like and what it will look like. Well, uh, for the sake of time, let's uh, shift to the God sends because there's a big connection here. So here's the God sends piece. Now, uh, it's going to sound like you just heard this because you did, but I'm going to read it again. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. So he says, now guys, you pray for God to send out people into the harvest field, send them out to extend the kingdom. You pray that God would send people to continue what Jesus started. All the stuff Jesus started, you pray that other workers go and continue that work. What happens in Matthew 10? Jesus sends the disciples out. I I always find that fascinating. In nine, Jesus says, now you guys pray that God sent out workers into his harvest. Okay, now you guys go be the answer to your prayer, right? Don't just pray for someone else. You pray and then you go. You go into the harvest field. Um, Now, how do we do that? Just like everything else. So we do that in our strength. We kind of, you know, we learn how to do evangelism approaches. We, uh, no, we're actually told So we read by Luke in Acts 1. How do we do it? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, right? So you're gonna go, you're gonna announce good news, you're gonna heal, you're you're gonna bring all these things that Jesus started, but it's gonna be through the power of the Spirit that you're gonna do it. Not through your giftedness, not through your discipline, not because of how smart you are, disciplined you are. You're gonna do it by God's energy working in you through the Spirit. And that's what happens. And so if you read the end of Acts 8, they're basically, or 1-8, there actually is the outline for the book of Acts. It begins in Jerusalem, spreads to Judea and Samaria. And by the time you get to the end, you are with um, Peter, Paul, and you're in Rome. And at that point, Rome would have been the center of the known world. Everything went to Rome and everything went from Rome. They had reached the ends of the earth. So there's the outline of Acts. So you go do it by my energy and my spirit. And that brings us to uh, the last act. And it's important to realize we're not in this act yet, okay? So we're not in the restored kingdom yet. I know you wish it was, but it's not. In order to get all that we're going to read now, you have to check out tonight. So if you want all this, check out. If not, you have to wait either until Christ returns or you check out. But when you check out, you get it, but it's not tonight if you're here. Some of, uh, some of my favorite verses, and uh, maybe yours too, if not, 
then maybe you don't live in touch with the sewer in which we live. But tell me this doesn't sound good. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. Now, that does not mean there's no water there, right? It's not a hydrological principle. Sea, right, in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the Israelites, the Jews, they were not seafaring people, right? You don't read about the Jews going on sailing missions, right? The Phoenicians do, the Jews do not. The sea always means chaos. The the sea means what's dark and dangerous, chaos, under under the control of the enemy. That's sea, right? So there's no longer any sea. That's what it means, right? No longer any chaos. No longer any conflict. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. A city wearing a wedding gown. You may have been told by like your eighth grade composition teacher, don't mix your metaphors. Oh, the Bible loves mixed metaphors. Right? Here, here's a city in a bride gown. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. Huh. Just like Genesis 1, God dwelling among his people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Oh, come Lord Jesus, right? No need for hankies, no need for medicine, no need for vaccines, no need for masks. We get nothing, right? God is with his people. And if you would read Genesis or Revelation 22, you would discover the echo of Genesis chapter 1. God starts and God closes the curtain. It's his story. He he starts it and he closes it. The Bible has a beginning. It has a middle. It has an end. We look at it in six acts. God creates. He's rejected, not passively, rebelliously. God promises. Sin and death will not be the last part of this story. My love, my grace, my victory will end the story. God appears to bring that victory to light. He sends us to be part of that and to be his messengers. My my goodness, we're more liabilities than assets, aren't we? I I mean, God could do it a whole lot better without us, but he chooses to use us, and it's amazing. And one day, God restores, and here's something you need to remember. It's a new heaven and a new earth. You know, the biblical view of heaven is not, you know, some uh, chubby little cherub floating around on a cloud playing a harp. Um, It's a new heaven and new earth. It's a physical place. It's a new heaven and new earth. Um, It's tangible. It isn't just ethereal. It isn't just soulish. It's soul and body. That's why, um, for those of you that like theology, that's why death theologically speaking, speaking, is called the intermediate state. Death is never the end because it's intermediate state because when you die, your soul and your body separate, right? Your soul spirit stuff goes to be with God. If you're a believer, it goes to be with God. Your body gets thrown into the ground somewhere. It gets burned, right? But that's the intermediate state. At the resurrection, your soul stuff and your body stuff get reunited again in a new glorified body like Jesus' resurrected body. That is the eternal state. That's new heaven and new earth. So it's not just souls and spirits floating around in heaven. No, it's souls reunited with bodies after the resurrection in the new heavens and new earth forever, just like God intended with no death. That's how the story ends. So I like to remind everybody when I tell the story, um, you are here. So when you read, you're not back there. You're not in act one. We were closed now, right? Uh, you're after act two, and we're part of the lineage of rejecting God, and we do that regularly. You know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll hear people say, and sometimes you may think, sometimes I'll think, Man, Adam and Eve, how could they be so stupid? 
I follow in their footsteps every day, right? And if, it, if it, they didn't do it, I would have done it, right? Um, we re- rebel, reject God all the time. God's way, my way. I doubt God's goodness. You know what, God, I better take over here. I don't trust you to do what's best for me. I better step in and run with my plan rather than yours. Yeah, that's Genesis 3 again. Um, we're after God appears. We're after the incarnation. We're after Jesus. We are now in the God sends act, which means we shouldn't be sitting waiting. We should be going as God sent. That's what we should be doing, waiting for the restoration. Got that? A pretty cool story, right? Human beings couldn't make that story up because human beings couldn't make themselves look so bad, right? We're always putting our thumb on the scale, trying to make ourselves look better than we are. You couldn't write a story where you look this bad, where you get into a predicament that you can't get out of. You're hopeless and helpless. It takes God coming and fixing what you messed up. We wouldn't have that story, right? but that's the biblical story. And there are six acts. Well, I wanted to end, not with our story. I hope you kind of know that. And I think the slides are posted. If not, you can get them on. on. You can get these now. You can have them if you want them. You, don't, you throw them away if you want. Um, I, I wanted to show you um, kind of what's happening in Heritage Hall, right? Heritage Hall, they're in small groups and you know Bob Travis is leading. They're doing God's big picture. So let me do a little comparison, kind of compare and contrast here. There are six acts at the bottom, right? You see that? Uh, you put on the side screen. So there are the six acts. God creates, God is rejected. Now notice, you've got that long God promises act that we said we could separate covenant, conquest, kingdom, right? Divided kingdom, we got all that. And then we got God appears, God sends. Um, but if you're looking at the amount of material, that third act is gigantic, right? But it's all kind of the same. God's bringing to earth what his kingdom would look like, trying to live out some of the principles Excuse me. Well, if you were up in Heritage Hall, and if you want, you can read the book. It's called God's Big Picture. There are the nine sections of God's big picture. So here's what they've got. They've got the pattern of the kingdom. That's act one, right? That's God creates. The perished kingdom, right? That's God is rejected. And they do what I said earlier. They take our God promises act and they separate it into these four. So they got the promised kingdom, just like ours, the partial kingdom, the pro, or excuse me, partial kingdom, partial kingdom, prophesied kingdom. Um, so just like I said, that's a giant act. So rather than have all that material under one heading, um, they separate it. Then they have the present kingdom. That's God appears, right? Jesus is the king coming with his kingdom. The proclaimed kingdom, God sends, and the perfected kingdom. So if you like that, that's fine. Um, and again, I, I, I read the book. I, I like the book. It, it's good. A, a couple things that I kind of like our acts a little better. Um, and and they're, they're, they're doing this, right? So when they do it, they're comparing our six acts with what they're doing in God's big picture. You, you do understand that kingdom and king, even though they're biblical ideas and concepts, are pretty foreign to us. So for example... Nobody in this room has ever lived under a king. And when I say kingdom, you probably think big walls, swords, guards, knights, round table. You think of stuff like that, right? You don't think what the Bible often speaks of, and that would be a kingdominion, right? Not land, but a kingdom. And so kingdom brings a lot of ideas and so forth in my mind, and probably lots of other people's mind, that takes a lot of explanation. I prefer just saying, yeah, God creates, God is rejected. We got this big act you can divide into some others rather than have to get into lots of, you know, vocabulary and dictionary exercises trying to figure out what it means, um, understanding that that act three is really big. I also, and, and, and don't, I'm not kind of ragging on or critiquing God's big picture, but you do understand the prophesied kingdom. So that would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets. But... That doesn't come after these three. The prophets come during those three. So the prophets are coming to the kings while they're ruling in Israel and Judah. Um, And the prophets come during and after. And yeah, you get a couple after the kingdom, but 
they're kind of through the kingdom, just like the epistles happen in the history of Acts, so the prophets often happen in the history of Kings and Chronicles. So all that to say, I kind of like our six acts. Um, but here's the biblical history that goes. It kind of goes with that. And if you want the big picture, here's how it goes. Creation, fall, patriarchs. Patriarchs are all the old guys, right? The old guys are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They're, they're the patriarchs. Then you got the Exodus and promising. Notice, the kingdom is undivided at this point, right? It's kind of flowing. God is bringing redemption through Abraham and through his people. And then you get Samuel, Saul, David, Solomon, and then the kingdom splits. And now you've got the northern kingdom, Israel. They are exiled soon after that. Judah continues for a little while. That eventually ends in an exile. Jesus comes and establishes the new kingdom that eventually goes into the new creation. So however you want to put it together, if you like the nine things from God's big picture, go for it. If you like the six acts, go for it. The point is, the Bible's a big story. It is a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you have to know where, where you are when you're reading, and you have to know where you are in your living. Because you may be reading in a different act than where you're living, and realize that we're living in the God sends act, and it's not sitting waiting, it's actually going and doing. Make sense? I don't want to end with this. I want to end with one other thing. And that is, I want to show you the significance of seeing the Bible as a big story. I became a Christian when I was in college for the ministry of crew. And uh, I won't go into the details, but the guy who came to my dorm room after I went to something sat on my dorm room bed and he read through that little yellow booklet with me called The Four Spiritual Laws. And, you know, you can kind of rag on The Four Spiritual Laws. I mean, it worked, right? I, I became a Christian. And The Four Spiritual Laws goes something like this. Law one, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. Law two, but man is sinful and separated from God. Law three, Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. Law four, you must personally you must personally receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord in order for that forgiveness to be good to you. Nothing wrong with that. Except, that doesn't start early enough in the story for people in our culture. That may have worked really well when it was developed and written in the 50s, and it worked pretty well in the 60s and 70s. Here's the problem today. If you were to walk onto a college campus, I was, or maybe even speak to some of your neighbors, and you were to say, God loves you and offer, offers a wonderful plan for your life, who would they understand God to be? What are the chances they'd be thinking, oh, you mean the God of the Bible? Eh, long shot. They're not thinking of that God. Of course he has a wonderful plan for him. God loves you. Of course, I'm lovable, right? Man is sinful. You know what sin means to most people in our world? Here's what sin means. Sin is anything that interferes or presents an obstacle for me receiving what I want. That's what sin is. If you get in my way, you're sinning against me in order for me to get my happiness. And so the four spiritual laws, I mean, in a sense, they're accurate. But in a biblically illiterate world, it doesn't start early enough in the story. We need to go further back. So there's an organization in Australia that actually have an evangelistic tool. I know some of us use I know Matt used it. I've used it a number of times. It's called Two Ways to Live. And Two Ways to Live is an evangelistic tool that goes through the acts. And so I'll show it to you. You can go online and check it out if you want. Here are the acts. God, the good ruler and creator. That's who God is, right? Um, so let's talk about this God. So here's a picture, right? Here's um, God, and he's wearing a crown. And this God, good creator, God's kind of the crown. He put human beings on the earth to be like sub-rulers. And so God's the big ruler, he's the crown. And he creates human beings to rule or to steward under him. So he made the world and he put human beings in his image under him to rule and to reproduce. That's act one, right? But those humans rebel. What do they do? They reject God, the big crown. They reject God, and they put the crown on their own head. Act of rebellion, right? 
I doubt God's goodness. I will now do it my way. So I'm not going to do what God wants because I know better. I have my best interest in mind. God really doesn't. And so I'm going to disqualify God. I'm going to qualify myself. I will now slip on the throne. Yeah, but you don't fit in that seat well. Um, well, because this God is sovereign, loving, and such, um, he will not allow that rebellion to continue. And so God brings justice. When you eat of it, you will certainly die. You'll experience alienation from me, God, each other, yourself, and the world, and one day you will physically die. That's the penalty for rebellion against the rightful ruler. That's not cruel. That's just the way it is. Um, I forget the name of the song. We used to sing a song. Uh, I'm not very good with Christian songs. But I always liked the one line after, after the chorus and talking about God and all this. And the end of the chorus always said, and that's just the way it is. God is God. That's just the way it is. You don't have to like it. You don't get to vote on that. He's God. It's his universe. He made all the stuff. He says how it runs. He sets the rules. That's just the way it is. You can live in light of those, in submission to those. You can break those and get broken in the process. That's just the way it is. So God's justice. Act four, or four, step four. God sends Jesus to earth, and notice, he lives under God's rightful, he's God, and he lives in perfect obedience to God. So if anybody meets the qualifications for eternal life and not experiencing judgment, it's Jesus, right? He meets all the qualifications. He checks all the, he perfectly obeys, always submits, he's in. But he willingly dies even though he didn't have to. So he can share the provision he made for sin with others. So Jesus, the risen ruler, right? So now he's risen. The world is his. And so now you have to make a choice. Only two ways to live. Well, you put the crown on your own head and remember where that leads, right? So you wear the crown you are now living in rebellion against God, and there are consequences for that. Thoughts, acts, deeds have consequences. Um, so, as America, you, you can do this. Or, you can live in obedience and belief in Jesus and have his death count for you because he didn't have to die. He died for those of us that had to die, but now won't have to die forever. Notice, that's the gospel, but it starts at the beginning of the story. It doesn't start in the middle where you don't know what's going on. You don't even know who the players are yet. It starts in act one and it ends up in act six. The acts are a little different than ours, but notice two ways to live follows the big story. That's what we need to communicate. We need to believe and we need to communicate that because if you start in the middle, you'll confuse people or they will just add Jesus to their life. They'll be adding the Jesus puzzle piece to their life. They'll be applying that to their life and they'll be applying Jesus to the wrong narrative. We need to go further back, present the big story, and then read your life into the story. Make sense? So the Bible's a big story, a meta-narrative. Amazingly, God invites us to be part of his story. And he says, uh, don't apply the Bible to your life. Apply your life to the Bible, to the story. Live in light. Live the story. Experience the results. Follow me. Live with me. Enjoy me forever. Not a bad story, huh? Let's pray. And don't tell them we were ragging on the, God's big picture, all right? Let's pray. Lord, it's hard for us to uh, stand here and imagine that we're the recipients and the beneficiaries of all of this that we do not deserve. In fact, we deserve all the downsides of the story, but through Jesus, we get only the upsides. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, uh, 
to dig deeply and to know the story and to read our lives into the story and to live the story and to make sure that when we share the story, we're starting far enough back so that people who don't know the storyline can understand who the players are, what the consequences are, why this is happening, what Jesus is all about. Lord, remind us of those things and then remind us how we can live them and share them with other people who need them as well. Thanks for that privilege. Thanks for that responsibility. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.